I got here before you, Dan. Candle. Sorry. Perfect. Thanks. Yeah. You want to stay? Yeah. No. Oh, okay. Hey, I'm so glad you're with us. My name is Jonathan. Uh, we're going to be continuing today in our study in Mark. We're in the Gospel of Mark, and we, after three weeks, we're going to be we're done with chapter one. Finally, we're going to move on to chapter two. So find your way to Mark, chapter two, and we're going to look at five moments in the life of Jesus. Five little stories where Jesus does something, and he is definitely in these moments stirring things up. He is definitely like uh, stirring the pot a little bit. And this is a point in his ministry where he's kind of come on the scene and suddenly he is trending. Everyone is talking about him. Hashtag Jesus is at the top of everyone's news feed. Do you see how I'm relating to the kids? It's yes. They're not even listening. It's all right. Um, but it, it, people are really reacting to him. And what you may not know about Jesus, but this is true, is at this point, right off the bat, he becomes a very polarizing figure. And so people have strong reactions to him, but they're not always good. Some people react really positively. Some people react really negatively. In fact, I want to skip to the end of these stories. We're going to end in chapter 3, uh, verse 6 today. Here's the final sentence of these five stories. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, how they might kill Jesus. It's quite a reaction, right? Whatever it is he does, these five things that he does, they look at it and they're like, let's get him. Now, this reaction would be even more surprising if we knew a little bit of the backstory. We know the Pharisees a little bit. We may not know who the Herodians were, but these were not groups who ever got along. These were groups that just, they hated each other. They had totally different values, totally different agendas. The Pharisees you may know more about, they were the religious purists. They uh, focused on obedience. They focused on scripture. They had this belief that if we could just be holy enough, like if we could just please God with our righteousness, then he would restore to our nation everything that we've lost. And he'd deal with the problem of Rome and we would return to the good old days when Israel was like this beacon on a hill for all the world to see what it means to follow God, right? That was the Pharisees' motives. The Herodians, on the other hand, they didn't care about any of that stuff. The Herodians were political opportunists. They got their name because they followed a guy, Herod Antipas. He was the king of the Jews at that point in history. What that meant was Rome allowed him to govern the people in Israel uh, as long as the taxes showed up on time and as long as the people didn't, uh, you know, rebel or anything like that. It, 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 he could keep them under control and he was allowed to be the one in power. He was kind of like a puppet for Rome right? But they didn't really mind because Herod and all of his cronies made a lot of money off of the deal. And so that's who the Herodians were. They didn't care about God. They cared about political power. So here's these two groups. They have nothing in common. One cares about spiritual purity. The other one cares about money and political power. They hated each other. Like, uh, like if I was going to give you a modern day example, this would be like if the conservatives and the liberals got together and said, let's get this guy. I mean, that's what Mark is telling us here. It's that level of animosity between these groups, but their reaction was to join together. 
I was recently listening to a talk by Brene Brown. I don't know if you know who that is. She's an author that writes on shame and relationships, trust, all this sort of stuff. She used a phrase, I'd never heard this phrase before, but as soon as she used it, I was like, wow, is that insightful. She used the phrase, common enemy intimacy. And what she did was describe this reality that is true of all of us as humans. We have this capacity to bond instantly with somebody else if we dislike the same people. Like if I said, who wants the Patriots to lose today? Like we'd become friends, right? <laughs> Just kidding, Christina. We have a few Patriot fans here. But uh, th this is what every politician does to us, right? When campaign season rolls around, they are going to tell you who we should hate. They're going to tell you who is the problem and who, sh who we should all be against because what they're trying to use is common enemy intimacy to bond with us. And that connection can actually be quite powerful. Like we've seen this throughout history. If you know your history, you know that in the hands of evil people, common enemy intimacy where they've scapegoated specific groups around the world has been the cause of some enormous atrocities in history. But it also works on just like a real personal level, just like a friendship level. Uh, do you have that friend who always has a negative story to say about someone else? They're always like, hey, don't tell them I told you this, but did you hear about? Or do you have that person at work who's always eager to talk bad about the boss? Oh, I can't believe what she did or what he did. Or if, if you're in school, if, like there, there's someone like this in every school, isn't there? Like they're always like, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? And it's never something good. It's never like, did you hear about so-and-so? They're great. I just thought they were a wonderful person, right? No, they never say that. It's, did you hear about so-and-so? You won't believe what he did or what she did. And what they're doing in that moment is they're trying to connect with another person, but they're using this negative feeling that we all carry around inside of us about other people to, to be the, the form of that connection. It's called common intim enemy intimacy. It feels like connection, but it's not. It's not real connection. It's not real friendship. It took me years of my life to learn this. And if you're, if you're younger, benefit from my pain and my heartache. I will save you years of heartache. You can absolutely trust this about common enemy intimacy. If someone will talk negatively to you about others, what do you think they're doing when you're not around? Right? They're talking negatively about you to others. It's, it, we all do that. It is this shortcut to intimacy, this shortcut to connection. It's not real. It always bites us. And if you have someone in your life who does this sort of stuff, just be very cautious around them because I promise they're doing it to you when you're not there. So here's the Pharisees. Here's the Herodians. They hate each other and they talk bad about each other all the time. But then along comes Jesus and he does these five things and it's like they look at each other and they're like, hey, do you feel threatened by this guy, Jesus? I feel threatened by Jesus too. Did we just become best friends? And they didn't become best friends, but they did team up in this moment to get Jesus. So that's how the passage ends. Jesus is bringing together people who hate each other, but not in a good way. He's bringing them together because of their shared hatred of him. Aren't you curious what he did to get this reaction? Five things. Let's look at these. Uh, Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Remember this. Mark's writing with an agenda. 
The agenda is this, to get us to answer the question, who do we say Jesus is? Uh, Mark tells us what he thinks right away. It's the first sentence of the book. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark believes Jesus is the Messiah. It means the anointed one, means the Son of God, meaning that Jesus is actually God. That he is, Mark believes, the physical embodiment of everything that God is. And it's an amazing claim, but he's saying, listen, if you've seen Jesus, you know exactly what God is like. If you want to know what's God's personality, what's God's opinion, how does he behave around other people, just look at Jesus. And he's going to give us five stories that help us focus in on what God is like. And I think all of them are intended to challenge us a little bit about what we would assume about God. Some people liked that. Some people hated it. First story, Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, The people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him uh, or get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. He got up, took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. First story. If Jesus is God, if God is everything that Jesus is, then what this tells us about God is a couple things. First of all, God loves faith. God loves faith. He loves it when we're like these four friends. They would stop at nothing to get to Jesus because they were so convinced that Jesus could help their friend. God loves that. Not only that, it tells us this God is eager to forgive. Like that is his personality. It's not just that God forgives, it's that he's eager to forgive. Excuse me. We don't know exactly what uh, this man's sins were, but Jesus somehow connects it to the physical condition. So it could be that his paralysis was the result of a sin, or it could be just Jesus is talking about in general, we all suffer because we live in a sinful world. Either way, though, if Jesus is God and God is everything Jesus is, it seems like God really likes to forgive sins and take away the consequences that you and I experience for sins. He's in the business of freeing us from the consequences we deserve. And Jesus wants these people to know, not only can he do that, not only does he have the power to do that, but he wants to do that. And the amazing thing is people reacted to this. Some people didn't like the idea that God would just remove the consequences of sin. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. Story number two, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So if Jesus is God, and God is everything Jesus is, then what this tells us about God is he loves enjoying a meal at the table with people who have made huge mistakes, willful mistakes sometimes. They've done the opposite of what they knew they should have done, and Jesus enjoys sitting at the table with them. Not only that, it tells us this, that God seems uninterested, like he just wants to pass on spending time with people who think they're healthy and righteous, like that's not a party he wants to go to. That's hard. I don't know how that story makes you feel, but it challenges me. I, I will be honest. I have pride. I have a lot of pride. I don't know if you do, but sometimes I think to myself that I am healthier and I am like righteous-er than some people. Um, and I tend to think of myself that way. But we read this story and what's hard about it is it tells us that God's response when we have that sort of attitude is to get up and go sit at another table. He just doesn't hang out with us. He, he goes and sits, in fact, at the table of the people that we think we're healthier than. He goes and sits at the table of the people that we know we're more righteous than. That's where he can be found. Another way to say this is if Jesus is God and God is everything Jesus is, then clearly sinners don't bother God. They don't. They never have. Sinners don't bother God. What seems to bother him is the sort of pride that insists, I'm the healthy one. That he actually seems to avoid that. And he can always be found at the table of those people that we think we're more healthy than. People reacted to that. Some loved it, obviously. Some felt embraced by it, and some hated it. Story 3, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they'll fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. We'll get to that wineskin thing in a minute, but let me just observe this. If Jesus is God, and God is everything Jesus is, then God likes it when we celebrate him and enjoy him. Now, there's obviously a time, of, a time for fasting. Jesus mentions that. But it appears here that Jesus prefers celebration to fasting. Now, some of us don't like to think of God that way because we wrongly assume that like fun and happiness and celebration is somehow shallow. And that like uh, seriousness, somber seriousness, discipline, that that's always somehow deeper than the fun stuff. 
but I think it, what's obvious, though, is that belief is inconsistent with how Jesus led his disciples. That's not how he led them. Jesus says to these guys, listen, your fasting that's meant to impress God, it's not actually all that impressive. What God prefers, what I prefer, is that you would just enjoy my presence, that you would enjoy that I am with you, and stop trying to impress me with your discipline. People reacted to that. Some loved it. Some really did not. Story four. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. So if Jesus is God and God is everything Jesus is, this is very important that we get this. What he's saying is God makes things for people. He doesn't make people for things. And all these rules and all these commands that God gave in the Old Testament that guided everyone's life, especially the Pharisees' life in Jesus' day, Jesus points out a really important thing that they'd overlooked, that those rules were made for you, not the other way around. You were not made for those rules. The Sabbath specifically, it's the set of commands that basically says that we should rest one out of every seven days. And it's this idea that God sees us and he says, listen, left to your own devices, I bet you'll work too hard. I bet you'll not trust me as much as I want you to. I bet you won't depend on me for everything. And so I want you one day a week to just take a break and realize that you're dependent upon me. He didn't invent the Sabbath to control us. He didn't invent the Sabbath because it was bad to make food on Saturday, which is what the, fair, or what the disciples were doing. He invented the Sabbath because he cares about us, because he wants us to flourish, because he thought this would be a helpful thing for people, not a controlling thing for people. And Jesus says, you guys have totally missed the point of these commands. So let me clarify. It's not to control you. It's for your benefit. Some people didn't like that. They didn't think that was true. Some loved it. Some hated it. Let me read this last story. Then I want to bring this all together. The last story is the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them in, at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. So if Jesus is God, if God is everything Jesus is, then what makes God angry is our stubbornness. It's our stubbornness that bothers him. It is our unwillingness 
to accept either his grace in our life or his grace for somebody else, our refusal, refusal to value compassion over the rules, our stubborn insistence that God cares more about rules than he does about people created in his image. That's what frustrates him. And so here's God, here's Jesus on the scene. He says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clarify all of this for you. I want you to know me as I actually am. You've missed it. You've drastically misunderstood some things about me. Here is who I am. And the reaction and the response is, verse 6, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. They hated it. They hated this idea that God was like this guy. They wouldn't accept it. I was listening to a podcast recently, and I heard a seminary professor named Daniel Kirk, who was on this podcast, he said this, when we read the Gospel of Mark, we should assume that we are the Pharisees, unless there's some reason not to. I thought, wow, that's challenging. He said, we'll get more out of it if we just assume that we have more in common with these Pharisees than if we read through the book and we assume that like, we're like Levi, or we're like the disciples, or we're like Jesus. Uh, he said, just assume you're a Pharisee unless there's a reason not to. Because what's true for the Pharisees, it was true also for the Herodians in this case, is they both had a lot to lose if Jesus was God. Like, they, they had a lot to gain, but they couldn't see that. What they saw was like in their world, the way that they had orchestrated everything, they would lose a lot of stuff that was important to them if Jesus was God. That's not true of the people who really embraced Jesus. The people who embraced Jesus, they were those on the fringes of society. They were on the margins. They were already rejected. They knew that they had lots of problems that they had to work through. Their only hope was that God actually was full of grace, Right? And when Jesus shows up and he starts relating to them as if that was true, they were shocked. They were delighted because here was a God who loves faith, who loves forgiveness, who, who loves joy and celebration, who loves eating with people who had blown it, who, who didn't care about his own rules more than he cared about them. And they were on the fringes of society and they saw this in Jesus and they loved it. I know we love that stuff about God too. I know we love the grace of Jesus and we see our need for it, but could we just for a minute consider that we also, like these Pharisees, might have something to lose? That if we really understood Jesus, if we really understood what he was and, and what he said, that we might just feel a little bit threatened in our world as well. We might just start holding on to something, holding on to the things that we value, protecting it a little bit, because Jesus, he is showing up, he is welcoming everyone, and that's wonderful, but he is also showing up and he is challenging every kingdom, and that includes our own. He even says this, right in the middle of these stories, he says this thing about uh, the patch and the garments, and he says the thing about the wineskins bursting. These metaphors, they may not connect with us, but here's the point of both of them. When the new thing shows up, the old thing gets torn or burst. And I think the simple truth of this is, I don't know if you've discovered this personally, I have. We cannot embrace Jesus without having some of our old thing burst. That's just what he does. And yes, he's full of grace and compassion, but he also 
bursts our old thing. Now, with the Pharisees, he's talking about something specific. He's talking about the old covenant and how that bursts, the new covenant bursts the old covenant. This was this picture of God that they had uh, based on the Old Testament law, the Old Testament commands, that God was very transactional. He wanted us to do certain things and to not do certain things. And if we gave God what he wanted, then he would give us what we wanted. And that's what they understood about God is that God was a God who wanted you to behave. And when Jesus shows up, he doesn't just dismiss that. He doesn't say, no, that's not true. In fact, what he says is, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, all that stuff about obeying and behaving. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, all that stuff was true. The mistake you made was the assumption about who was going to keep the commands, who was going to fulfill this whole law. And Jesus says, I am here to fulfill these. It's this God who says, here are my expectations. And then this God who shows up and says, I'm going to fulfill my own expectations. And that is why for us, there's just grace. And there's just enjoying the presence of God in our life because he has fulfilled it all. The new thing, he says, is not going to fit inside of that old thing. It's totally different. It's this truth that Jesus is not improving the old thing. It's not like he takes the Old Testament and he says, let me fix it for you. But no, 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 he is ending it. He is completing it. He is replacing it. And the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're starting to feel the discomfort that comes from knowing that that old thing that they put so much worth in has now been blown apart by this new thing. Jesus was bursting apart what they understood about God, and they just they couldn't let go of the old thing. Isn't that true of each of us on some level? That when Jesus shows up, it's just sometimes hard to let go of the old stuff. It's just sometimes hard to let go of our kingdom when we start to feel that bursting. We kind of start to resist it. We find ways around it. Now, I like these stories. I, I like to read them. I I, I like to identify with the four friends or maybe Levi. I like to laugh at those stupid Pharisees. Ha! They're so stupid, those Pharisees. Um, you know, but then I start thinking about how much I'm willing to let this God of radical grace and compassion burst apart the stuff that I have. How much I'm willing to let this God burst apart my things, my schedule, my finances, where is my family, what I believe about religion, what I do in my free time, my pride, how I relate to anyone, to everyone. And I started thinking about how he bursts apart those things, and suddenly I, you know, I'm honestly, I'm starting to feel a little threatened too by Jesus, and maybe that seminary professor's point is well taken. Maybe we all have some things to lose, and maybe we do have something in common with these Pharisees. Mark, he's showing us, he's stretching us, that God's not who we would expect him to be. It's, it's this radical picture of a God who moves towards people, not away, who fights for those on the margins. He crosses every boundary to come and get us so we can know his love. This God who says, people matter to me more than anything. People matter to me more than your politics, more than your money, more than your safety, your security, your success, more than anything we might pursue, God says. People matter to me more than that. I think we should feel the conflict that creates. 
When that sort of God comes into our life, there is a bursting. And I think what Mark is trying to teach us in these stories is that what the Pharisees and the Herodians did, it's, it's something that we're all likely doing at some point in our life. Whatever you hold on to and protect, that is going to be the thing that limits your experience of the real God. That was true for the Pharisees, true for the Herodians. Jesus is challenging the thing that they would protect the most. And he does the same thing to us. Whatever you hold on to and protect, that's going to be what limits your experience of God. So maybe that's the question in light of these stories. Not what were they protecting, but what are we protecting from God? I like the spectrum we see here of these reactions to God. You have on one end, let's say Levi, He's a criminal. He's uh, rejected by society. He's doing all sorts of bad stuff. Um, Jesus shows up and he says, hey, follow me. He drops everything and he embraces him. And he's crazy uh, about this God. He loves this Jesus full of grace. And you have over here on this side, uh, the Pharisee, you know, good God-fearing, church-attending, conservative folks they care very much about the things of God. And Jesus shows up and he doesn't fit into the box that they thought he should fit into. And so they say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And they seek to kill him. And you look at that spectrum and you see kind of those two characters. And the truth is this, we're both of those, right? We've got to embrace the fact that we are both of those. We are Levi, we are the Pharisees, and we need to experience Jesus in both places. We need to experience the Jesus that Levi experienced, this Jesus who says, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. He meets us in our brokenness, that he comes alongside of us, and he says, listen, I have space for you. I have fulfilled it all, so all you have to do is experience this grace and this love that I have for you. It's the Jesus that finds us in our brokenness. But don't we also need to experience the Jesus who challenges us? The Jesus that the Pharisees met every day? The Jesus who's constantly pointing to the margins and he's saying, see these people out here? These people matter to me. And your thing, your system that's keeping them on the outside, I'm going to break it apart until you care about these people as much as I do. And that's what the Pharisees experienced from Jesus. And it wasn't the comfort that Levi experienced, but we probably need to experience that Jesus too. And you have the comforting Jesus and the disruptive Jesus. I mean, they're the same Jesus. But he probably needs to do both for us. I, I debated as I was thinking about the sermon, how should I end it? Should I end it on the comforting note? Should I end it on the disruptive note? Should I put it to a vote? Um, I think maybe today, let's just consider this, that, that we do have something in common with the Pharisees. We do have something in common with them. We have things that we don't want to lose. We have things that we protect from God and things that we maybe hold on to a little bit tightly. So let me end with maybe just three somewhat disturbing conclusions. We'll end with that. The first is this. We are likely, in some way, we are likely being stubborn with Jesus' message of compassion. How are we doing that? Like we all have this in us, right? I know we don't like to think about it, but we all have this in us, the stubbornness. Uh, it, it, the Bible says it deeply distressed Jesus. 
the stubbornness that makes us miss out on God makes other people miss out on God because we're being stubborn with his message of compassion. How are we doing that? Here's a second disturbing conclusion. We are likely holding on to something and protecting it from Jesus. What is it? That's going to be the thing that limits our experience of the real God. Is it your schedule? Is it your family? Is it your money, your reputation, your friends at school, your free time? Is it your pride? What is that thing that you're holding on to and protecting from Jesus? Last disturbing thought here. Jesus is absolutely trying to burst apart something in us. How can we embrace that? He is absolutely doing that. He is not just trying to add something to our life. That's not what Jesus does. You wouldn't expect the real God to show up and say, I just have a few suggestions. He is trying to replace our life with a new life like he did for Levi, like he would have done with the Pharisees had they listened to him. A new life rooted in compassion for you, for everyone on the margins. And it doesn't fit into our thing. It breaks our thing apart and it replaces it. How can we embrace that? I think I just want us to think on these things as we close today. Um, If one of those maybe lands in your heart, let's not harden our hearts like the Pharisees did, but let's maybe just spend some time in confession. I mean, these are stories where Jesus says, listen, I love it when people say, I'm struggling in this area. I'm sick, I maybe have a problem. He embraces that in us. So maybe we could just go to him in confession today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. We love the grace. We love the compassion you have for us. Give us the courage to also love the ways that you stretch us, that you tear us, that you burst us apart and give us a new life. Lord, we confess that we hang on to our stuff, even though what you have is so much better. We confess that we hold on tightly to the things that matter to us. Give us the courage, Lord, to trust you with them, to allow them to be changed and to become new and to be broken. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord. 